0: So how about doing something today that actually matters while you still can? Hey, my friends. Welcome to the Quick Talk Podcast. Josh here. I'm super pumped you're with me. You guys have been spoiled this entire last week. I've been interviewing people that you would never otherwise hear about. I'm finding these people under rocks and in crevices. A lot of the relationships I have from the kind of internet marketing world that I'm in now and some other people I know, I've been really blessed to be able to get some of these people on the podcast, and today is no exception. Today, I'm joined by my friend Aaron Stokes. He comes from down south in the Tennessee area, and he currently runs an auto repair business, actually multiple, that does... north of $8 million in the $8 million range per year. So he's a blue collar entrepreneur just like you. He started with nothing. He had an eighth grade education. He's also got a side business coaching other uh, shop owners, these auto repair shops that does another couple million a year. He's a super smart guy. He's been humbled by pain and suffering in his life. And I've asked him to come on and share some of his expertise and knowledge with you so that you guys can learn amazing things and get it in your brain and change your life and change your family tree. Aaron, Thank you for carving out some time today to talk to me. No problem, man. Thanks for letting me come on with you. Oh, dude, I was so pumped. I was like, hey, man, you want to come on? And you're like, sure. I'm like, yes, (laughs) yes, because you, I just, I love people like you um, because you've had the adversity, you've had the ability to make excuses, you've had the ability to go completely the other direction with your life, but you've, you've continued to progress and improve and grow. You've had ups and downs and tons of crazy stuff that I'll let you explain, but where you are right now and what you're doing and the impact you're having is enormous, enormous. And I know there are people listening that don't have a lot going on right now, but they got that fire in their belly and they know that they're meant for something bigger. You are that guy. So can you introduce us to Aaron Stokes and tell us how all this got started in the early days?
1: Well, um, yes, I can. So Uh, back in, let's see, I guess I'm the oldest of six. I'll start with that. I'm the oldest of six. Um, my father and mother got divorced, uh, when I was 11 years old. I was that kid looking through the railing, watching his dad leave, uh, his mother behind. And my mom had my youngest brother on her hip and he was one years old or one year old. And she begged him not to leave. And, uh, It it really rocked me as I watched him walk out the door. My grandfather rolled his RV up, parked in our driveway, started living with us, and kind of became my dad. And um, I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot about discipline, um, commitment. Uh, I learned from my dad what not to do, you know. Um, And at that stage, whenever we went through that period of time, it it you know, you don't realize what you're going to be as a kid if everything's normal then what you end up becoming when things kind of go off the rails. Right. You know, life all of a sudden, some kind of trauma happens as a young man, young woman, and you become something totally different. So I was already a bit of a leader, but um, I, I was probably subdued somewhat. because We moved a lot. I was a Navy brat. My dad was in the Navy. And I think now I'm in my 43rd, 44th house. Um, wow. And I think even though I only have an eighth grade education, I went to 11 schools. Um, I've lived in uh, nine different states. So, uh, everywhere from Kansas, Texas, to Florida, to Illinois, to Virginia, and everywhere in between. Been in Tennessee the longest now, and this is home. So, um, I say all that to say that, uh, you know, my mom needed some money at one point, and I needed money. I wanted to have a car. So, she's trying to homeschool me. I rebelled. I started working full time at 15 years old. Um, helping to pay bills for the family car and uh, um, the household my mom was living on the poverty level off the of child support and cleaning houses with six children mm, okay. met my wife on the internet um, in 1996 in a chat room on CompuServe yeah I think if you if any of your clients have ever heard of CompuServe and all my friends were like Aaron how do you know this, this this girl isn't some fat guy eating Cheetos, you know, sixty <laughs> years old on the other side of the thing? And I was like, I don't, you know, but these pictures look good, so we'll see. And uh, I ended up meeting her at a theme park and uh, called Carowinds out in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, I lived in Nashville. It was a seven-hour drive. And her dad was a pastor. He wanted to check me out, make sure I didn't have any tattoos or earrings. And he said, okay, you can hang out with her for the day. <laughs> and uh, hung out with her. And uh, three years later, we ended up getting married. She moved out to Tennessee, lived with my youth pastor at the time. Um, and just so for all the listeners to know, there was a critical point in my life where I didn't know where I was supposed to go. And one of the trips out there visiting her in Charlotte, uh, my car got wrecked. And it was a Saab 900 with bald tires and I flipped over in a ditch. And, uh, when that happened, it, uh, I remember standing there in the ditch, looking at the bottom of my car and I was like, this is not good. And I had paid my insurance late as a teenager, didn't know, didn't think it was a big deal. You know, it was two days late or something, but apparently that gave them like this seven day window to reject any claims. And so they were able to reject the claim, excuse me. And so I was able to then say you know uh i disagree but that didn't get me anywhere and so i ended up driving this thing home from the salvage yard all beat up you know roof caved in windows broken it was just, it was really bad found a job at a body shop and i actually lived in charlotte north carolina um, and had a pretty aggressive encounter with the lord out there and uh i just kind of went through a time of revival in my life from about 18 and a half to 19 years old and by the way when i met my wife i was 17 and she was 15. Wow. You know
0: the internet. Wow. I can just, yeah. I'm picturing like... you downloading the picture she sent you on 56 K internet. Uh, and it's like one uh, section did, of the you didn't picture download. is like getting it. No, 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 no. She, <laughs> she snail mailed me a picture. We didn't, wow.
1: No downloading pictures back then. That's great. And, so uh, it wasn't on yeah, FarmersOnly.com
0: that you met her. It wasn't on farmers only. That's like the new uh, no, joke. No, of the you day. Know, it, no,
1: it was not on farmers only. <laughs> I could sing, sing a theme song for you though, but it was not on that one. But, um, yeah, we yeah, man, we uh we met February third of ninety six, met in person, at Memorial Day of ninety six. Uh our first date was we went and saw uh I think the following year or later that fall, Independence Day with Will Smith when it came out and
0: great movie. I had
1: a stick shift and I tried to get I tried to get her to I was like, Let me teach you how to drive a stick and I it was my way of tricking her to let me hold her hand. She wouldn't have it. So um but we had fun and we ended up getting married in uh ninety nine. Living in a single wide trailer. And I had uh, started listening to a guy named Dave Ramsey. He
0: Love Dave. Out
1: of debt and Love Dave. Yeah, he's right here in Franklin, Tennessee. Um, and I was a youth pastor for years. And I had met him at a couple events. Didn't have a relationship or anything. But as a youth pastor, he'd had some events um, at his uh, campus here in Cool Springs. And then also uh, the church he was associated with. I was a youth pastor taking my kids to the same, the same church camp. We'd share the cost. And so... He'd come to a couple of the events. I shook his hand. That was it. But um, I was listening to him on the radio all the time, and his advice was get out of debt. And so I I looked at that car. I owed 3500 on it. So I was like, okay, I need to sell it. So the way I got out of Charlotte with that car was I worked in a body shop for six months. And at night, they would let me work on my car for free. And so I did that for six months, and everybody was super impressed with how well the car was built and how strong the steel was. And it wasn't the recycled steel you see in a lot of other cars. And so – I was like, wow, this is a really cool car. So when I get back, I hear Dave Ramsey talk about getting out of debt. And uh, I was like, well, I guess I'll try to sell it and get out of debt. And so I'll buy a junker and fix that one up. So I sell it and I find one for like 1600 bucks that had a bad transmission in it. And I drove down to Oklahoma saw my grandfather. And to this day there's a picture in all my shops that has a picture of me in the kitchen tearing down a transmission with him and I bought my, uh, you know, my Chilton manual and didn't know anything about cars. I was just one of those guys that just always piddled with dirt bikes and lawnmowers and all that stuff. And I was able to get that transmission rebuilt and made it work, and I sold it. And I did that about 25 times in a row, and everybody started calling me up saying, "Will you work on my car. And I was just flipping titles and flipping these cars. And so then I opened up a little business in a one-car garage in downtown Franklin. Three months later, I get kicked out of there. Didn't have tax ID. Didn't have anything. (laughs) Moving to a, uh, you know, I'm off the radar. I don't even think I was paying income tax back then or anything. I mean, it was, it was nothing. I was like, I think I was making maybe 1500 gross a month and maybe netting out of that a hundred dollars if I was lucky. I mean, it was, it was horrible. But, um, you know, I eventually moved into a barn in my backyard. Um, at the time it wasn't mine. It was a different guy living in the single wide trailer in front and I put gravel down this old tobacco barn and, Found some of that sport court flooring you put together in the back of a basketball court and uh, found some that was used and faded, and I put it all together and started working on cars in this barn. When I jacked cars up with the jacks, they'd break through the plastic into the gravel, and so I'd have to put plywood underneath it where I'd put the jack. And Wow. It was, it was brutal. I had, I had black plastic hanging in this barn because I had no doors, and the wind would blow, and I had two-by-fours in the bottom to keep it from blowing around, and I had a wood stove in there to keep me warm. And it blows so hard those two by fours would fly up and smash the taillights out of cars. And it was, you know, it was bad.
0: It was really bad. This is like a movie. Aaron, this is like I'm just I'm sketching a screenplay out as you're talking. This is insane. I started my—so you were married at 20, living in a trailer, doing what you're saying, right, to be clear? Because I, I got married at married 20. I
1: got married at 21, and my wife was 19. Okay,
0: I got married at 20, lived in a trailer, and I started my business with a Chevy—93 Chevy Cavalier with a 28-foot Warner ladder strapped to the roof of the car. So, like, there you go. I am so fist-bumping you as you talk. So keep keep going. I'm with you. <laughs> so, um, and during that period of time I was flipping cars— I was painting
1: houses. I was doing plumbing. I was doing drywall. I was doing building decks, doing construction. I was always a man's man, handy guy. And uh, flipping these cars on the side. And I called my stepdad up and I said, hey, are we going to, can we start a business? I didn't want to do construction or do cars. And he knew both. He said, you know what? I just found a job working for somebody else doing construction. I don't think I want to do anything on my own. And I said, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to go do cars. And so that's how I started fixing them, and uh, I remember just praying that someday I could get to 1000 a week, and I needed 800 to pay my rent, and I was able to pay my rent barely and got married at my church, and we had 350 people there. I still remember walking in, and my hair was long, and I went and I buzzed my hair in a uh, uh, broom closet because I couldn't find the men's room, and uh, they had a mirror in there and a shower with a mop bucket in it. And so I took a shower, and when I got out, I couldn't find anything to dry off with. But I found a stack of folded paper towels and these folded paper towels, I undid the bundle and I dried off with these paper towels and it was so crazy. And I walk out and I walk around the corner and there was the bathroom. I couldn't believe it. And we get home from our honeymoon and we had gutted this trailer and this trailer was just absolutely destroyed. I mean, I ripped everything, all the plumbing, all the kitchen out, tore walls down, put in all the new carpet. But none of it was finished, and we got back, and we got in our first fight, and I remember going in the kitchen, and I took a, a little jigsaw and I started cutting out the sink, and she's all mad because I'm doing it at midnight. And, you know, we just went through it, man. It was it was rough, and my first kid, we didn't make enough money to, you know, to pay for the hospital bill, and uh, so they paid for the kid to be born, but the state did, but we paid for my wife, and I was making sixteen grand a year, and I started, you know, at that point – I think it was three months in that single car garage. Then when I moved in the barn, I was like, Oh, I'm gonna get legit now. I'm gonna really, you know, pay taxes and do the thing three months later and actually got a sales tax account and everything, but the city wouldn't give me a permit. So I had no permit with the city, you know, almost twenty years ago. But yet the state would take my sales tax money. It was the craziest thing. And I remember saying to myself, if I can just do five grand a week, you know, I'll make it. And eventually I got to five grand a week. I still wasn't making it. I was still broke, and I begged God for work and pray and This whole period now in this trailer, I become a youth pastor at a church. I grow a youth group from three kids to 125 kids. I'm driving kids, you know, 75 kids at a time up to uh, uh, Colorado to do ski trips because we weren't going to do sissy ones on the East Coast. I was taking kids (laughs) eight hours into Mexico, way in the belly of Mexico, the heroin capital of the world, Um, taking 65 kids to that, got my commercial license, was driving Greyhound buses, at the same time, running my shop, and then, you know, it all falls apart and the the church ends up firing me over a disagreement. The church goes through some some problems and then I, you know, uh, start looking for my identity and I'm like, I got to make money. You know, I was making 30 grand at the church, 30 grand at the shop, and now all of a sudden all I'm making is 30 grand. And so I went from 60 to 30. And I found some coaches and got around some people and turns out I'd made some bad decisions, couldn't get things off the ground. And I finally am able to, I'm trying to figure out how I can skip some parts so I can see the most exciting parts. I, I finally figured out how I could make it work and get my debts paid because I moved into town. I kept running it like I was in my backyard. I didn't understand a profit loss statement or anything. So that same church had a bookkeeper They let go. That bookkeeper heard I was looking for somebody. And so she reaches out. She shows up. Her name was Priscilla. And she teaches me how to run a business. She's like, this is how a checkbook works. This is how QuickBooks works. This is how a file box works. This is how you put your logo in the top left of your checks. I was doing everything <laughs> handwritten on a ledger. That's so awesome. Up till two thousand four, I was wearing jeans and a t shirt. You know, I just I looked bad, man. I was white trash. And um, I keep doing my deal, living in a single wide, and I get into I, I knew how to build because of my construction background and I keep trying to get a loan. I couldn't because I had seventy five cars still in the junkyard in my backyard. And so they wouldn't let me buy this eight acres I was on. And so finally a bank approves it. When I get the, the cars off there, I promised my wife I'd find a way to get it done. She didn't believe me. And I get it done. And I built a 4,000 square foot house on that property. Um still the nicest house in the street. Um, and I love that place. And uh, I, I was super proud of it. Took a HELOC out, paid off all my debt. And so then we're loving life. Everything's going fine. And then I'm, Probably at that point, I'm in a 20 group. I'm learning about business. I'm making 150, 180000 a year. Things are going great. And a banker shows up and says, we're a brand new bank in town. We're going to help you build your own building. And I don't know any better. I'm making more money than I've ever made in my life. And I say, sure. Well, then there's a guy who uh, I hear about has a meeting in his house. And I get told there's 10 people allowed to be in this meeting. And a friend of mine calls me up and he says, are you going to the meeting over to Greg's? And I said, man, I think already 10 people signed up. And he said, dude, if you've got to sit on the freaking front porch with a solo cup up to the glass listening, you better get your ass in a car and get down there to Atlanta and be at that meeting. And I was like, whoa. And that was the first time I'd ever experienced somebody else's aggression, somebody else's masculinity. And it rub off on me and I go. What, what am I doing? I got to go, you know? And so I jumped in the car. I went to the meeting. The guy was like a bodybuilder. He's super intimidating. He has this big, you know, several million dollar ranch. I'll go inside and he, he cracks open a beer. He sits on the hearth of the fireplace. And he looks at the 10 shop owners in the room. He said, the smallest in here may end up being the biggest. And the biggest in here may end up being the smallest. And not everybody in this room will still be in business 10 years from now. And I didn't know how powerful those words would be for me until today. I am the biggest out of everybody in that room. Um, the other guy that was the biggest is still in business, but several of the guys in the middle are out of business. And he looked at everybody's shops. We didn't have smartphones back then. that could pull up pictures of shops, but we had our laptops. And he looked at the laptop of my shop and he looked at me, looked at the picture, looked at me and, he said, you're too smart to ever go out of business. Here's my cell number. You call me if you ever need anything. And that started a relationship um, with one of the most successful people I know still to this day. And uh, that guy began just giving me advice. Well, all of a sudden, the crash in 2008 hits. 2009, um, I tell the truth, tell the bank, hey, we're running 14% over budget. They use it as an excuse to pull out on that building that they tried to talk me in the building. And, or not that they tried, that they did talk me in the building. And they start suing me, and I call up my buddy, and he says, right now you need to go find another shop, start another shop right now. You're going to lose everything. And I said, what? And he said, they're going to come after you. And he said, go get another shop. He goes, how much money you got? I said, I have $40,000. He said, how much can you get? I said, maybe I can borrow another 60 for somebody else. He said, go get it. I called a guy from my church. and said, hey, can I borrow 60 grand? He said, when can you pay it back? I said, 90 days. He said, how much can you pay me? I said, 70 grand. He said, okay, there'll be a check on the counter. Come on by. I drove over to the house. His wife is there. There's a check. It's sitting on the kitchen table under the salt shaker. I grab it. I tell her thank you. I leave. I take that plus my forty thousand. I try to get a building. That didn't work out. I ended up getting a building two doors down. I open up the store. Probably ninety days later, and we had no electricity. We had a generator outside. We're painting polyurethane on the doors when customers start showing up the first day we open. I did fifty-three thousand my first month. My original store I think probably did a buck fifty. Um, that store then nine days later, the manager quits and walks out of me. Um, I do 73 the second with me kind of doing it with an old friend who kind of comes in and kind of quasi helps. I do 103 a third, I get a manager hired and within 20 months, that store does 224,000. My original store does 164,000 and I make $100,000 in one month within 20 months of opening that store.
0: Let me push pause for 2 seconds. I've got I got a couple questions. This is beyond crazy. Your life is a wild roller coaster ride, my friend. That's oh, there's, insane. There's still more. So so the bank. I'm just I, I just want to make sure the listeners have context. They had asked you if they could f- help you finance a building and then did you start the process of that and you like had started breaking ground and then you said never mind or how how exactly were they going to be able to come so We did. Come start, after you?
1: We started breaking ground. And got the foundation all laid out, got the water detention pond built, got it all set up for the survey for my thing. I'd already been paying down payments. The bank was a brand new bank in town. I'm in a wealthy area, the wealthiest area in Tennessee. And so they were trying to get a piece of the pie, and they were just looking for any clients. And you'll find, and I'll tell this to anybody listening, if you have a risky deal and you're trying to find a bank to do it, the best bank is always a brand new bank that's opening up. Not a brand new branch, a brand new bank. Because they will do riskier deals because they're trying to get their foot off the ground or their, uh, get the bank off the ground. So they, the the, the city was in a uh, historic restoration period where they were trying to watch everything. And so they said, "I was in this historic district, so they wanted me to do these extra things, which raised the budget fourteen percent." I could have lied, and you you've seen this all the time. People talk about blowing the budget, and then once the biz you know, once the building gets going, the bank can't stop. They're stuck, right? They'll stop at the end. of, not putting carpet in but they won't stop building the building because the thing won't be worth anything if they do so i we're at the dirt stage and i tell them the truth and uh they pull out and i always said to myself i should have never done that i should have lied like everybody else until today obviously i i see now there was a bigger picture but at this stage you can remember right before this the church just fired me i was dealing with a lot of rejection i was a very strong leader from being a youth pastor and at a large church and uh just always kind of being my own man my own man's man going my own way and so i just i couldn't stand the banks and the bank that did this to me is the same banker that shut dave ramsey down 20 years earlier and bragged me about doing it that put dave ramsey under and made him file bankruptcy so at this stage you know i had some people tell me to file bankruptcy some people tell me to pull out and Everything Well, when he countersues, when they, when they sue me, I start thinking I need to countersue, but first I need to protect my business. I should open up this other LLC.
0: Okay, okay, that makes sense. So you opening the other location to protect. Okay, that ties a nice bow on it for my brain, and sorry sorry to detract from your story. Keep, keep rocking and rolling. This is really, really interesting.
1: So um, the bank doesn't even know about the second store at first. So I start really advertising on the radio, becoming a kind of a, a radio personality. I'm on there so much. start doing a lot of direct mail. Really just start crushing it and, um, doing very well, paying off all my debts. I launched a rental car company. It's my entire business is very innovative, very different from everything else that's out there. All my staff is wearing shirts and ties. Floors were all white in the shop, carpet up in the front waiting rooms, you know, business centers in my shops. It was just a much higher level. And I paid my buddy back, by the way, in 90 days. Don't want everybody to worry about that. And, uh, you know, just did, I just did really well. Well, um, as that period goes on, the bank doesn't know still when they're going to get their money. And they're like wanting me to curtail this lot and pay it down. I'm like, I can't pay this lot down. I'm sorry, but it's not happening. And, uh, you know, we're 2009, 2010, really we're in the, the absolute valley of the mess that, you know, we all went through eight years ago. And so I'm at that stage and I'm just going, okay, what's next? And I find a third location. And this was in the blue collar area. I go open the third store. And when I get the third store open, things start rocking uh, there. And I decide that it would be super smart of me to go open up a car dealership. And I think, you know, I don't want to keep, you know, this auto repair thing's too easy. I don't want to keep opening up more businesses just because, you know, uh, it's easy. I, I want to challenge it. And I don't want to keep driving. I want to be home with my kids more. I don't want to have to drive 30 minutes to a location. I'd rather keep them close. All stupid, stupid, stupid reasons. So any of your multi-location guys, don't ever listen to that advice. You put your business where it makes money. That's what you do. You don't care where it's at. Don't put it anywhere because it's close to your house. And so I learned a hard lesson that uh, one of my mentors, the guy I told the story about earlier, Greg, said, which was when you're the most bored is probably when you're making the most
0: money. Man, I can I can validate that. That is I've never heard someone say that, man. That's for people like us. That is 100% true. <laughs> Once it starts working, we start to seek out a new adventure. Cuz I mean, is this true for you? I mean, it's not about the money, right? It's about the oh, yeah. the building. All right? your listeners, everybody you know that's an entrepreneur, if if they start getting bored and things
1: are working great, guys go get a rental house Go, you know, go, go get a hobby, do something, but don't go screw with your business. (laughs) Just don't go screw with your business. (laughs) Find something else to distract you. Go buy an RV and take your family on a trip. Just don't go screw with your business. It'd be better. And I learned this the hard way. It'd be better to go get a hobby and spend the money than even to break the business. Because if you break the business, not only do you spend the money, you also have a broken business now. And by the way, there is no broken business, which remind me to explain that later? I'll come back to that. So at the end of this whole um, this whole mess, I'm opening up this store. It's taking off. it's eight months open. it's really good. I think it's opening month. it did seventy five thousand. I've got three stores now it's trucking and I, it's an old Mitsubishi dealership, and I think, hey, I, I could sell cars here. So I get floor plans, put a million and a half dollars with the inventory out there. can't ever figure it out, hire a bunch of consultants, and uh, you know, I'm very good at factories, systems. Sales and people and used car sales, you have to kind of be a little slimy until you really have your reputation. And then you can, I feel, be a lot more upfront. front. And uh, the, the European world is pretty difficult. I sold a lot of European cars. And that is not um, that's not a car market you just dive into. Those cars drop like a rock. Uh, a used car lot is more like a grocery store than it is a repair shop. Because those cars are always dropping in value. Like, food's always spoiling and going bad. And mm-hmm. So um, I had to really figure it out. My, I later found out from my accountant, it is the most complicated accounting in the world is a used car lot. And I've had that verified from multiple accountants. There are accounts that won't even touch it. And I never knew this going in. <laughs> so, you so you kind of created, me, like, your own cool.
0: nightmare because of your boredom. You started to oh, create yeah. a nightmare for yourself.
1: Yep. And so, um, I hire a guy from an infinity store. He comes in, um, he commits fraud in the business and steals from me and sells cars, um, below cost to inflate commissions, ramps the business up from 300 grand a month, uh, in the car sales department to a million a month. And to give you an idea, like it, one girl could probably handle three to four auto repair shops. One used car lot would take probably three to four people. The paperwork for each deal is just so ridiculous. So, one, one busy car lot, I'll say that. And so, uh, I ended up uh, at that stage figuring out he was stealing it from me. One of my staff came to me. I had a CPA on staff and he came to me and said, Aaron, uh, there's a hundred grand missing. Excuse me, there's a hundred grand missing. I said, a hundred grand. He said, yeah, a hundred thousand dollars. And I was like, are you kidding me? He said, no. So we start digging into it and comes back and he goes, Aaron, it's, it's, I'm sorry. Uh, he's like pausing, you know, and stumping on his words. Uh, there's, uh, there's, there's 250,000. I go, what? No. And he goes, yeah. And I go, give us three more days. Let's figure out what, what's going on. I call Priscilla back, who's always kind of been on the side helping me. She shows up. She starts digging into it. And she comes back and goes, Aaron, it's north of 350. And at this point, I just start to freak out. Just so you have context, the bank starts suing me. I find the largest banking lawyer in the country, in in Nashville, and who had successfully sued SunTrust for like six or seven million, also defended those four guys at Duke that were accused of rape that didn't actually uh, commit it, had their lives ruined and he defended them. And so, um, I end up hiring him. He comes in and they're like freaking out now. The bank's like, oh my gosh, you're bringing in the big dog. And uh, we counter sue. My wife finds a farm that's 37 acres. We buy the farm. We sell our house. We take the farm that we bought that's 37 acres. We turn around and sell off probably, I don't know, five acres to one family, five acres to another family, and two acres to my aunt over the course of a five, six-month period. Make money on all of it. But the way we pulled it off was we traded my commercial lot that the bank sued me for, for this farm. He couldn't sell the lot. I mean, I couldn't sell my lot and he couldn't sell the farm. He then gets my lot and then trades it to a guy that had five acres north of town. (laughs) And so it all in one day gets swapped out. And then the bank gets stuck with a deficit of about $80,000. I get stuck with a deficit of about $80,000 and the bank signs a, uh, a zero collateral, you know, three year note with me at 5% interest for my portion of the 80 grand. And that's how I get out of it. So I'm getting out of that lawsuit with that, that lot and buying a farm with this used car lot inside the stop, start all at the same time. And then if I wasn't stupid enough, I get a construction loan and I go and I tell my wife, we're not just going to build a house, we're going to build a barn house because this is going to be our, our, it's a big, it was a beautiful hilltop with a pond up there, rolling hills, big giant trees. It was gorgeous. And um, I, I said, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a barn house. that will have like an apartment in it, all real wood bar, barn. And then we'll build our, our, our beautiful home next door. And it'll be this gorgeous hilltop thing. And I'll put my Ferrari collection in there someday or something, right? <laughs> so we build this barn house. I think I'm going to build it for 250 It ends up costing me 550 It blows the budget. I end up putting all my cash into it. And and I spent four sixty something or five hundred on the lot. And um the I find out I'm getting stolen from. The lot's being built. You know, all this is happening at the same time. Um I just sold my last house. I'm living in a rental house. I mean, the amount of change. And then to make it worse, my aunt asked me to build her house next door, and I say yes. So I'm building two structures, open up a used car lot, I have three auto repair shops, and I'm negotiating this lawsuit and all this crap. And my wife is just had our fourth kid. So like the crap's hitting the fan. And, um, I started, I didn't know it. I went into a two, three year, just absolute hell. And as my accountant said, uh, Aaron, what do you do when you find yourself in hell? And I said, what? And he said, keep walking. And, uh, I, I just put one foot in front of the other. I had, uh, everybody from the IRS to, um, the Tennessee department of revenue, to um, oh gosh uh, the banks all my landlords I was late with everything the theft ends up not just being three fifty ends up not being just four fifty five fifty or even six hundred and seventy five thousand which is what we thought it was at the very end we borrow another half a million dollars put another guy in charge of it try to turn it around lose all of that then have to borrow another two fifty to finally shut it down it ended up costing me a million four to go through the entire mess. And I'm sitting here going, God, oh, why? You know, why, God, why? And uh, just turn into an absolute mess. Um, to make a long story short, I end up then opening up more locations and getting those rocking. Um, and just, just putting my nose to the grindstone, uh, really just hammering it out, get things turned around. And at that point, that's when I realized that there are no broken businesses. People will try to say, my business is broken. And I'm just going to tell all your listeners, there is no broken business, and their business isn't broken. It is designed to give them exactly the results that they are getting. And businesses are designed backwards, results all the way to the planning. So if you don't like the results you're getting, you have to work from the results you want and then go forward or go backwards to the planning. And when I realized that, there was no broken business, that business only... Spits out what's put in. I then, the light bulb went off and I just started going to town doing what I knew, which is factories and sales and, um, uh, you know, really understanding how to make it happen. And I could have, I look back, I absolutely could have made it work. The whole reason I used car didn't work was I was trying to sell European cars in a farm town. If every time I had a used F 150 get traded in, it was gone in an hour and the light bulb never went off, then I should have done something different. But what I didn't realize is God had a plan for me and I go through this period, start turning things around and I end up at a conference that I joined uh, another 20 group type training session. And I'm there and I'm in the back of the room and uh, everybody at the table, I had not told them at the time I probably had. I have five locations now. I've gotten rid of some. But at the time, I probably had seven, maybe eight. I can't remember. And uh, I'm at the back of the room and a guy at my table is leading the table. and He says, hey, we all need to give our opinion on marketing. They're going to ask us. What's up? And this is the very last session of the day. He said, I'd like to give you the mic. I was like, no, 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 I don't want it. He's like, no, I'd like you to. I was like, no. They get to our table. My guy gives his little speech. And then he says, and Tony here wants to say something. And he hands me the mic. And I'm like, my name's not Tony. And so <laughs> I'm a little irritated. And I go on a 90-second rant. And there's a bunch of shops that, and for context, for anybody who's not in the auto repair world, they were all doing about a million a year, maybe 750 which is a small business for us in our industry and they had been doing that for 10 to 20 years. And so I just went on a rampage for 90 seconds because I was frustrated because I'd been through so much. I was very raw and, you know, I had stores doing much more revenue and I was frustrated why they were hung up. And I said, if your front door is not bigger, if you're only concentrating on your front door being bigger than your back door, then you're not focused. You need to understand that you have to fix the back door in every business. If you don't keep customers, it doesn't do any good. So I was, i have always been very big on that, keeping customers being a customer collector, if you will, mm-hmm. and always blowing them away. And that way, I can have lower marketing costs. And uh, I, I give this little rant. I say a bunch of things. Let's, uh, I won't get into it. It's a lot of auto repair jargon your listeners wouldn't know. But I get done. I hand the mic back. Well, then all of a sudden, the guy goes, "All right, that's a wrap. That's it." And he claps his hands. Everybody claps, and the meeting's over. I was like, "Oh, this is awkward. I'm going to get kicked out of this thing." And by the way, I'd already been kicked out of a peer group probably two, three years earlier. And so I just, I, I'm just being honest, I fired from the church, kicked out the peer group. And I was, I've always been that super, really nice guy. But um, people gravitate towards me and always ended up with other leaders that felt jealous or were nervous around me or felt that I wanted their job. And I never really did. And so I don't know if it was my immaturity as a young man and I just maybe said things I shouldn't have said that made him feel that way. Um, but I definitely matured over that period. I know there were periods of time where I was very arrogant and I thought I had it figured out. And then I just got very, very humbled. And keep in mind, I got an eighth grade education. You know, I worked, worked full time at, at 15. I, I, don't, I don't have any of the college degrees. Everything I know is from reading. So in my own personal experience. And so when all this went down, I throw my laptop in my backpack. I zip it up and I'm turned around facing a, it's like a ballroom in a hotel and I'm facing the wall. I throw it on my back and I turn around and there's 20 guys standing there in a half moon. And I'm like, what the heck? And one of the guys, you know, uh, starts asking me questions. Another guy, another guy. And I just start spitting off answers. And they're like, you know more than the guy up front. Why aren't you teaching? I was like, no. And they go, how many shops do you got? I'm like, I don't know, you know, maybe eight. And they're like, what? Oh, my gosh. And so they all just start flipping out and start drilling me for questions. And I just keep trying to just push them away. One of the guys like, how do I get around you more? And I was like, I I don't do teaching. I don't do that. I was just kind of irritated. Now, granted, I knew I was a good teacher because I had been a youth pastor and I was teaching two, three times a week, and I knew that I could take that with me and I could use that to help these people, but I just wasn't interested. I was too broken. Well, a guy tracks me down, gets the number, my number from someone else, texts me and says, I'm serious. How much would it take to work with you and be around you for three months and have some phone calls? And I, said, I don't know, seven grand. I just made something up to make him go away, and I texted it to him. And his response was a picture of his credit card. And I was like, oh, crap. And I show it to my wife. And she's like, well, I guess you better get to work. <laughs> so wow. I went and I made a video course of 99 videos, 17 and a half hours of content. Launched my little deal. Before you know it, I had 10 clients, then 15. And I, you know, this guy was right on my tail. Like, as soon as I get stuff finished, he'd be, he'd be watching it. When's the next one? When's the next one? And 18 months later, I got almost a, you know, a couple million dollar consultancy that makes me as much, if not more than, you know, what my auto repair shops make. And my shops are hitting record months they've never hit before. This is just crazy. And, you know, it's, uh, uh, now, you know, my last conference had over 200 people and I'm standing up there and I get done, I go to the back. One of my guys grabs me. And he's like, do you realize everything in your life has led you up to this point? All the situations you've been through. So you can help, every Tom, Dick and Harry in this audience and all those youth pastor years where you were leading kids, taking them on trips and learning them, you know, and, uh, on events and doing hotels and everything was for this. And so now I run these mastermind meetings and I have no intention of stopping. And uh, you know, I, I just have a heart and I'm good at getting in people's heads and, and getting people to, to move, to take action and there's a lot of things I suck at, but that's one thing I'm very very good at getting in people's faces without hurting their feelings but making them realize that they're worth more. They gotta step up and uh I've skipped a lot I've skipped a lot of the tears and getting into my rope and the, you know the the bad partnerships and all the things that went wrong and almost you know being five hours away from being shut- you know shut down, having all my accounts levied and you know, all that stuff happened, and I worked my way through it, all
0: of it. Well, there's, there's a quote that I love, and maybe we can kind of pivot the the conversation a little bit after getting your amazingly epic backstory. And I want to like do like a lightning round of just asking you some business stuff from your perspective. But there's this quote that I like, and it's, you can always identify a leader because they're laying face down in the dirt with arrows in their back. <laughs> so like when you were speaking at that mastermind group, <laughs> Um <clears throat> People could tell very quickly that you had actually been through the fire that you had that you had you had suffered and came out of it, and that you knew stuff and actually you weren 't even totally out of it, but that life experience is what allows you to be able to add value to other people 's lives man and I think it's awesome. Like The world needs people like Aaron Stokes to go bang their head against the wall, try 400 different things, and create this complex web of stories so that you have massive context and compassion when you're helping people and you can quickly identify what's broken. And I love earlier when you said that um, uh, your business – is perfectly calibrated to give you exactly the the result that you're getting. I have another friend that's been on the show several times named Michael Kaplan and he says the exact same thing. He says your business systems are perfectly calibrated to give you exactly the result that you're getting. And I think that's really powerful because, you know, it's really easy to make excuses or say you're a victim or my market's different or you don't understand, you know, this particular struggle when the reality is, is all these businesses have these struggles and there are solutions, uh, but you can go the hard way or you can find someone like you and kind of learn from someone that's walked that path. And if I could, I took a couple notes too. I want to ask you some questions. So a lot of what what I think you teach is really in alignment with what I teach on the show and, and some of the digital courses that, we, that I sell through Automate Sell. Um, and it has to do with, number one, you're not scared to invest in your own education. You kind of glossed over that, but I know you're paying some big money to get in certain rooms. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. I think that's interesting because a lot of people are terrified of that. Um, so let's start with that. Uh, briefly, if you could, how important was it for you to create the network that you have to learn from high-level high, high level people? Even going back to that story with the 10 people in that guy's living room where you listened. What would have happened if you hadn't done that? And what advice do you have for someone that's uh, on the fence about something like that?
1: Um, I, I would go as far as to say you're one relationship away from your next quarter million dollars. In fact, you're probably one relationship away from your next million dollars. And then when you get the relationship, if you'll actually listen and do what they say. I, I have you know hundreds right now of shop clients and every one of them that argues with me is a small shop and every shop that listens to me is a large shop and the large shops they move so quickly because they just listen and if i had not been in that living room if i had not been at that other meeting um if that guy hadn't chased me down begging me to teach him if i had not you never know when the next breakthrough is around the corner you just have to dig for it and people don't like the fact that if you take a piece of paper and you draw with a piece of paper, if you can imagine, left to right, up, down, up, down, and you're working your way across the page. It looks like zigzag, zigzag, zigzag. But if you take that page and then you turn it crooked to the left, what you end up seeing is a staircase. And at the top right of that staircase, you know that's the life, that's the success you've been fighting for. But it takes time, which is going forward on the step. Then it takes going up a step which is you being enlightened and being more personally aware, more personal development, more self-aware, et cetera. And that's really all personal development is, right? It's becoming more and more self-aware. Your place against everybody else in the room. And when people get into that situation, they start to understand that, you know, my life isn't really a bunch of zigzags. Each one was a calculated step that God laid in front of me because I was searching, because I was looking. And I would tell your audience, if they would just keep looking, just fight the good fight, don't stop looking. People get so hung up on that they want the fastest route. Well, the fastest route is through relationships and education. That is always the fastest route, but it won't be straight. But the crazy part is, if you were to take your life and bottom left, you put zero, and then bottom right, you put 65, or you know, working life, we'll say, zero to 65, and then your net worth from bottom right being zero to the top right being five million dollars or twenty million dollars or a hundred million dollars if you were to take your net worth it will hover just barely above the line all the way to your 65 and probably around 60 it shoots up right when you could have it shoot up way before in your 30s if you just get around the right people in your 20s if you get around the right people and just do what they tell you to do just listen don't argue don't think you know everything don't be stubborn. Just listen, and that's what I was humbled with. That's what I went through. And when I started understanding that, really, it's not even a smooth curve. It's really that staircase I described. I started seeing that. Oh my gosh, that's how I get. That's how I get closer to my own heaven. What I think that God has for me to do here on this earth before I go, and if the only way I can get there is to climb those steps, I will. Cle- I will keep climbing those steps. But see, we don't look at it from that perspective. We look at it from looking down on a piece of paper and we just go, oh, there's a wrong decision. We self-corrected. There's a wrong decision. We self-corrected. There's a wrong decision. We self-corrected. But hey, even if you're doing that, you're making progress. You're getting from the left side of the page to the right. And so many people don't even get to the middle of the page. They're afraid to make even a
0: decision. That's true, man. I don't know if that helps. That was it. That was amazing. That was a great answer. I always say progress, not perfection. Or another one I like is massive imperfect action, right? But people are paralyzed by fear. And one way to lessen the fear is by getting information from people with the arrows in their back that have already done it. I mean, come on. I mean, it's common sense in a way. Um, and then the other thing you mentioned earlier, you, you had alluded to the fact that you're heavy on like this, this idea of persuades, um, Perceived value, or you might not call it that, but this idea that the customer experience the details like the the color of the floor on your shop is intentionally different. You're creating a blue ocean you're creating a different new opportunity for your shop where it's obvious that they're in a, a brand new type of shop that they've never seen before that they didn't even know existed, which in turn I'm assuming allows you to charge premium prices and serve people at a higher level and take care of your employees better. How important with business in general is you know, perceived value and focusing on the nuanced details, the minutia of that whole experience from your perspective?
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's everything. Um, it's kind of like there is people want to say there's no silver bullet, right? Josh, there's no silver bullet. I disagree. There's actually hundreds. And I believe that it's not one change. It's many, it's many changes that makes the experience. So a customer comes into any, let's say somebody on here is a, you know, uh, a handyman. Well, if the handyman rolls up in a beat up F 150 and they've got the toolbox in the bed and they've got some drywall sticking out of the back and he walks in with a shirt with a logo on it that's faded, an old ball cap, you know, with a fishing hook on it. And a little bit of dip in his mouth and a sun drop bottle in the cup holder. It's not going to, he's not going to get as many sales, but if he rolls up and an F-150 is spotless, he on purpose buys tons of knockoff brand polos from rjroberts.com so that he can always have fresh ones around that have his logo because he sees that as part of his brand image, clean, crisp hats. That truck is always spotless. What will he attract? He'll attract customers that are willing to pay for that. Because what do we all view the contract industry as? It's messy. They don't show up on time. They don't finish anything on time. If you just did that, you'd land more sales. Same thing as the auto industry. It's the greasy, nasty industry. All I was doing was looking for where there's no professionalism. Like in car sales, everybody wears a shirt and tie. In car repair, no one does. And so you just look at your industry and you say, how can I do something? You know, the biggest thing any of us can do is fresh flowers. If your business on the front counter has fresh flowers, that's more important than painting that 70s paneling that's on the wall. It's more important than having the place smell nice. It's more important than having new carpet, anything. It's fresh flowers. And it's a cheap thing. You can go to Costco and buy flowers in the last two weeks for 20 bucks, $10 a week. And if you have a couple hundred customers go through there, how many impressions are you making? I mean, if I had a dry cleaner, every dry cleaner I go into the front lobby is hot because they don't ever put a C up front and it those steamers in the back. People don't think it makes a difference, but it's hot. That front lobby would be super nice. It would be different. It doesn't cost you. It's it's one time capital expense versus over and over and over. Yeah. Flowers over and over, but the rest of it's not. You get a little bit of jazz music playing on the front counter when they come in, it calms them down. They don't know why, you know, it's all the little things that just add up cumulatively to create an amazing experience. And they're all silver bullets.
0: That's so but if good he,
1: If the contractor just had a hat, it wouldn't sell. If he just had the shirt, it wouldn't sell. If he just had a five o'clock shave, it wouldn't sell. Uh, every contractor should keep an electric razor in his truck on charger. He should show up with this even if he's got a beard, his neck beard's tight, got a nice crisp line, his hat looks new and fresh. Swap the hat out when you go to walk into somebody's house to make a bid. People get that you know, these single operator plumbers and electricians that get so busy. My, my stepdad does that, I tell him all the time, don't answer your phone from, you know, 7 in the morning uh, until 11 and leave a voicemail that says I return all my calls from 11 a.m. to 12.30. And then the, the contractor goes and takes a lunch off-site on purpose. He rejects all his calls during that period, and he's able to take those phone calls and then line up how the rest of his week's going to be and the rest of his month. And he schedules when he's going to go visit these other places, and he doesn't do it during rush hour because he knows it's going to affect his uh, timing but uh you know getting back to the job and uh running an organized business one of the reasons all blue collar workers don't have enough work going out is because when they have to start scheduling and start hiring they get stressed and they just say i'm too busy. I'm just too busy. I just can't just I can't do anymore call so and so. And it's because they don't know how to bring structure. And, you know you always want life before structure you don't want structure before life.
0: Yeah. They're just, they're so busy trying to survive that they'd never make time to push pause so that they can, you know, thrive and Hey, that rhyme, that's kind of cool. But, but really that's what it is. And so they get in this inertia, this momentum of being stuck. And it's, it's exactly for the reasons that you said. They don't pay attention to the details. It's a, it's these little itty bitty, I call them micro calibrations, and you stack them on top of each other, and it has a radical cumulative effect. And it has two benefits, which you mentioned both of them, which number one, you automatically start attracting, uh, value conscious buyers instead of just commoditized price sensitive buyers who have no problem hiring the guy with the crappy truck because they're going to beat the crap out of him on his price until he's doing it for next to nothing. Um, but it also helps you charge, you know, higher prices with higher margins and all that stuff like it. This is the path, you know, and I preach this all the time. It's really cool to hear you from a totally different industry, like totally validate my main premises. So oh, yeah.
1: And and I believe in going after the cheap customers, but I believe in doing it in a way that you have safeguards. You know you're not going to go below this, this, and this. You know your cost per hour, your cost per day. You know what you your nut is that you've got to cover. You've, you've figured out all of your overhead. You go into the situation eyes wide open, not wide shut, and, you, and you're able to go in and say, this is what has to happen, Mr. Customer. And if you win the customer, great. If you don't, you don't. But a lot of times, let's just be real. I don't care what your client is, even in auto repair. The only reason that customer's at my shop versus the last shop that they're at is because they're divorcing the previous business and marrying me, hopefully. They're never going to spend as much with me the first time as they did probably with the last guy the last time. They've got to get to know me. So even a price-conscious buyer isn't that much of a price-conscious buyer because they just don't know any better. What do you ask a plumber? Hey, are you any good? You know, are uh, you going to run uh, copper? you Are going to run... Uh, you know, uh, uh, PEX. What are you going to kind of? What are you going to do? How are you going to wire up my house? How are you going to roof my house? They don't know. Customers ask those questions because they don't know what else to ask. And so sometimes you have to get them on a small job. They get trust, and then they'll pay the top dollar on the next job. And what's going to create a value conscious customer out of a cheap customer is first you have to lead and be value conscious. You have to offer more than what they're paying for. If you can just do that, just blow them away. You know, the Airbnb, live a mint on the pillow. You know, I don't care what it is. Just offer a tad bit more so that the value differentiation is always in your favor. You're always the guy being left with somebody owing you a favor. Yes. It'll always be
0: easier. That is so good, man. You're dropping the fire. Now I got you all wound up, Aaron. This is is really interesting. (laughs) So you talked about keeping customers. I call that like relationship marketing. Uh, one form of it, you know, retention, like a lot of the businesses I help, you'll look at their historical revenue and it, it's easy to go from zero dollars in a brand new business up to something. But when they reach a certain threshold, depending on the industry, it just flatlines. And one of the biggest reasons that I talk about in this show is because they're losing a customer out the back door for everyone they're getting in the front door. And that's when it's kind of game over in terms of growth, right? But they're not even aware it's happening because they're not even thinking about stuff like this or whatever. And they're not spending any budget, time, effort, energy, creativity at all trying to retain customers, even though every statistic and common sense tells us that that's the path. And you mentioned that for yourself, too. Uh, Tell us your thoughts on that.
1: I, I honestly believe that when a business starts to hit a threshold, it's because they stop saying yes. If you would just keep, let's just take it to the next level. They own a restaurant. There is no saying yes, right? You know, people just keep showing up, right? They keep banging on the door trying to get in. And you're full. And you say things like, oh, you know, instead of saying an hour and a half, you say 90 minutes because somehow that sounds better. And so you tell me 90 minutes till I can get a table. And what do I do? I leave and I go down the street to Carrabba's or Chili's or something, right? And so this happens over and over and over and over and over in shops, in dry cleaners, in restaurants, with roofers, all across America. The base of business they've created has set out a word of mouth pattern, but because it comes in waves, when the next wave hits, they can't handle it. My personal opinion, get your surfboard out, wax that sucker up and jump on and ride that wave. Honey, you're not going to see me for a while. And you hire somebody, if you can ride that wave till it lands on the beach, You can paddle back out and do it again. But what happens is these guys stand out there in the ocean and the wave crashes and they might call you up or call somebody else out and go, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get systems. I don't know how to hire more people. I'm scared to hire more people. I won't be able to pay them. I won't be able to do this. I won't be able to do that. What if my business doesn't grow? And somehow they believe that business won't keep growing. It's easier to believe it won't than it will, which is crazy to me, but that's what they believe. And so what ends up happening is the wave crashes. So you've been to the beach with your kids. If you imagine standing there, the wave hits you in the back. And what happens? That water goes all the way up to the lawn chair or the beach chair. And when it, when it goes up there, the water around you goes down to your ankles. And now there's nothing, there's no business. But if you would ride that wave, you get way up high on that depth, that water, it will carry you all the way in the shore. Then you can ride, you can paddle back out and ride the next wave. You can just do this over and over. But the business owner that just stands there, The wave crashes you so hard, it knocks you off balance, and you're stuck in ankle-deep water. And it happens over and over and over. And if they would learn one time, the next time I get a rush, I'm just going to say yes to every freaking customer that comes in because necessity is the mother of all invention. And you look at every restaurant that's become like a landmark and blown up and gotten crazy everywhere in the country. It's because they kept saying yes. There's this barbecue restaurant called The Salt Lake between… Austin and uh, San Antonio that I love going to when I'm in Texas. And this restaurant's nuts. You know, it's like an hour outside of town and tour buses are pulling out there and everything. They can seat like 2,000 people. It's, it's just crazy, stupid. But when you look at that restaurant and anything else that your listeners can think of, that's become like this go-to place. At some point, the business became more than the owner could handle. And the owner just had to figure it out. He just had to start hiring people because he's pulling his hair out. And then the systems came later, and he slowly got more efficient. But in the first part, it was just sloppy. What owners have to see is they just have to say yes. I'd rather have the opportunity to be sloppy than have a nice, tight, controlled, small business that never can grow that's being strangled every day. All businesses want to naturally grow. All of them. They are all trying to grow. And when you say no, that customer leaves and goes, yeah, that's that restaurant so good, but you can never get in there and they never come again. They literally black label you. And then here's the stupid part. You go advertise to them. So now it's a hidden tax on your business to try to get customers that will never go to you to just spread more rumors about that great restaurant that no one could ever get in. (laughs) All you have to do is hire twice as many waitresses, keep the same tables so you hire twice as many cooks, turn the tables twice as fast, and the waitresses are going to say, you took me from eight tables to four tables. I don't want to do that, but when the waitress can turn four tables in forty-five minutes versus eight tables in an hour and a half, they end up doing the same eight tables in an hour and a half, and they get twice the tips because the clients get in and out quicker. They're happier. Mic drop. And when, I mean, that's just the, that's the deal. And nobody <laughs> guys think about this stuff. And it's in every business. Every freaking business has more capacity.
0: Well, wow. yeah, I'll do. Sorry, I'm getting off on the ring. Well, Sorry. could you say everything you just said again except use some passion this time, you know? I really want It's it's like there No, I'm just kidding. That was insane. And you know what? I've taken a ton of your time, so I want to wrap it up. Uh But I I loved this conversation. Like the nomenclature, the words you're using, the way that you're describing is all brand new. I have a lot of people from the home service industries on the show. And, you know, we have like, like we have our information. It's like in a silo, right? And then to meet someone like you and to get some nuggets from you is just super fresh and super awesome. Just the way that you're explaining it and articulating it. And on top of that, your story and what you're doing is insane. I mean, $8 million with the shops and a $2 million coaching business, it's, It's not normal stuff, but after hearing you explain your story along with your belief systems with capacity and perceived value and paying for your education, investing in networking relationships, like it just makes sense. And for me, all this is becoming even more clear, you know, but for the little guy that's out there still fighting the good fight, that still has a long journey to go, um, to close us out, what words of encouragement would you give them uh, to encourage them and what things would they avoid? Any kind of quick tips to kind of close out the show? What do you think?
1: Become a very good salesman and a very good marketer. You can do those two things. You can, even if you're not good at systems, you can hire a systems guy. Even if you're not good at organization, you can buy courses from guys like you and information and books and and get the systems in there. But you must naturally be charismatic, whether you like it or not, and able to talk to people. About what your business does, how it's different, and, and I mean, you can tell I get passionate. I get excited. This is how I talk to all my auto repair clients. I get super excited. They're like, "Holy crap! I got to buy auto repair from this guy." I'm gonna have this guy do <laughs> the same thing if you sell water <laughs> heaters. I don't care, but you gotta so just awesome. get excited. i the number one thing I can. If you're talking, if you got some guy who's a roofer, you got some guy that's a plumber. You said most of them are blue collar. That's I relate to that you got to understand that everything about you, everything they're watching. So just be enthusiastic. And what is being enthusiastic? What is doing it different? Just take your life and put a highlighter on everything. So my white on my shirt will be whiter than the next guy's. My jeans will be nicer than the next guy's. My shoes, the moment they start looking worn, I'm going to replace them. Because if I'm out selling home services, I got to look the part. If I'm out doing something else, if I'm even my staff, i got to have them look in the point. But I'm going to pour into my team. I'm going to pour into my customers. I'm going to offer more value. And I'm going to get excited and get enthusiastic. Your clients can get as big as they freaking want to get. And if they're socially awkward and not good at talking to people, then more than ever, they need to get in these peer groups and these coaching groups and around other people and learn that stuff from guys like you. They, they need to do it. The only reason I can talk the way I can talk today I have an eighth grade education. I have a very, very, very small vocabulary. If you listen to me enough, I say the same crap over and over. Not the same crap, but the same, I use the same words over and over. But I've learned with my limited experience in school to be able to articulate things in a way and make it make sense and connect for people. And the light bulb go off. One thing leads to the next thing, which leads to the next thing, which leads to the next thing. And for all you know, you listen to this, which makes you go talk to another guy. Meet a guy at a bowling alley. That guy introduces you to some other guy who introduced you to some girl who then takes you to somebody else. And before you know it, you see the dots all connecting. You go, oh my gosh, there's a pony right there. There's my my little pony. And you (laughs) see it. But you've got to understand the dots are there and you have to just follow it. And so many people don't want to follow it because they want today's results. Celebrate the small wins right now. Get enthusiastic. If you just get enthusiastic about your little bitty business right now, when you were me, I mean, I was taking business cards and sticking them in every window, getting in trouble on these cars, but I was pushing it. I was excited about my little business. I was niched down. You know, there's riches and niches, and so I was niched on just sobs, and then sobs sued me, and then I ended up almost losing everything. I didn't even tell you all that part of the story, but it, I had to understand what I had to do to go after what I had to go after, and it was all about being enthusiastic. Just get excited about life. Why not? Now, what does it hurt to be excited and put a
0: highlighter on your life?
1: What does it hurt?
0: Not a darn day, thing. Not a darn thing. Oh, I had to put thing. out
1: more effort. Well, you put out more effort, you're going to get way more in return. Just come on. Tell your audience, they just got to go out and live life. Tomorrow or tonight, I'm going to the lake with my family. We're going out in the boat tomorrow. Go live. Go, go live. You have one life. Go live.
0: Man, sorry. that's good. I, just, I
1: get excited about that's that. That's good.
0: Sorry, man. Well, Aaron, I thank you. Thank you on behalf of everybody listening. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are going to hear this, they're going to be inspired by it. And I'm very grateful and I appreciate your time, Aaron. And, um, you know, if there's a way that, do you have a website? Is there a way people can connect with you or watch some of your videos or do you have content or anything or do we not want to do that? What do you think? Um,
1: I, I do. It's, it's mostly for auto shops, but I mean, it, it talks about hiring and firing and it really is pretty generic. So I guess it would apply to anything. If they find me, um, I'm all over Facebook. I kind of live there. I spend several hours a day. All my videos are there. I have very little on YouTube. I do have a YouTube channel, but if you go on Facebook and search for Aaron Stokes, but my company is called Shop Fix Academy. Shop Fix Academy. There's a Facebook page there. There's quite a bit of videos on Shop Fix Academy's uh, uh, site or Facebook page. Shopfixacademy.com is my website. There's some info there. You can check me out at my auto repair sites, which are autofixrepair.com or um, EurofixOnline.com or my radio show that I do here in Nashville on Saturdays, which is Fixing Cars with Aaron Stokes on Facebook as well. Um, but I'm on Facebook. They can find me as a picture of me with my, my beard and they can, they can send me a Facebook message and track me down that way if they'd like. murica
0: Murka. Murka. Hey, thank you, Aaron. Thanks, everybody. A quick talk. Go check out Aaron on Facebook. Search for Shop Fix Academy. I hope you've enjoyed this. If you have, do not be an information hoarder. Don't be a selfish jerk. Share this. People need this. It can change their life. It can change the path that they're on. They need to hear stories like this. This guy came from nothing. Okay, he's crushing it. He's had. All, you you heard the episode. Share it. Share it and give us a five star review on iTunes if you're getting review out of this, or I'm sorry, value out of this. And Aaron, again, thank you. I'll,